Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Every church seems to have its share of individuals who are known for different things. Uh, There might be a resident theologian, someone that everybody in the church knows, knows his doctrine and is uh, very fond of that. Perhaps a resident evangelist, someone in the church that uh, is just fired up about sharing their faith and everyone knows that he or she is the individual that's always telling others about Jesus. Of course, we here have our resident joke teller. That would be Paul Williams, who's sitting over here to my right and your left. Every Sunday, his Sunday school class knows that he's going to come in and tell a joke. And so I've asked him if I could share one of those. Now, some of Paul's I can't share from the pulpit. He seems to specialize in blonde jokes, but since my wife is blonde, I'm not going to tell any of those either. But this one I am going to tell goes along with our sermon today. And so there is a joke about heaven. And you know there are a lot of jokes about heaven. And most all of them involve Peter standing at the gate ready to receive whoever has come to heaven. And so this joke is uh, that as well. And so this lady passes away and she goes to heaven and she is greeted there by Peter. And Peter says to her, in order to get into heaven, you have to spell a word. And she said, okay, what word do I need to spell? And he said, it doesn't matter. You can pick whatever word you want. You just have to spell a word. And she says, okay, I will spell love, L-O-V-E. And he says, of course, well, come on in. A few minutes later, he says to her, hey, could you do me a favor? I actually have an apostles meeting that I need to get to. And so I want you to stay here at the gate for a few minutes while I'm at that meeting And you do to others what I've just done to you. That is, you have to get them to spell a word. And she says, okay, I'll be happy to do that. And so she mans the gate for a little while, and very soon her husband comes to the gate. And she says, what in the world are you doing here? And he says, well, I was so distraught at your passing that on the way home from the funeral, I had an accident and died. And so here I am. And she said, okay, in order to get into heaven, all you've got to do is spell one word. He said, okay, what word? And she said, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Now, there's all kinds of jokes about getting into heaven and who's going to get in and who's not. We tell those all the time in various forms, but maybe we joke about getting into heaven because we're a little uneasy about whether we're going because we're a little unsure about what it really does take to go into heaven. Well, school's starting back this week. We're going to talk today about what it takes to get into heaven from our continued series on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to talk about today is an entrance exam. That is, what does it take for you and I to assure that we are going to be in heaven someday? Years ago, I did Evangelism Explosion, one of those programs that teach people how to share their faith. And EE, as it was called, is known for asking two questions in order to start the spiritual conversation. 
the first question they ask is this, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? Most people don't know how to answer that question. And so most people sort of hem-haw around and eventually say something like, well, I hope so. And yet the Bible says in 1 John that these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. Not that you might hope so, but that you might know for certain that you are going to go to heaven. And so the second question is this. Well, suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? That gets to the heart of what someone is trusting in. That, that gets to the basic idea of what someone believes is necessary in order to get into heaven. And once again, many people simply don't know how to answer that question. And so they begin to talk about the things they've done. Well, I've tried to be a pretty good person. I've tried to go to church when, it's, when I'm available and or they talk about sins that they've avoided. I've never done this or I've never done that. And so many people simply don't know how to answer what does it take to get into heaven. They don't know what the entrance exam is all about. And that's what we are going to be talking about today from Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. So that by the time we get done today, I hope we're all at least certain of what it takes but more than that, I hope we're all settled in knowing that we are going. Verse 21, Jesus speaking again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are some of the most chilling words I think that Jesus ever said. It's clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, the most words that just send chills up us. To have the idea of coming to the end of our life and hearing Jesus say this to us. We have talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that there are two roads. The broad road that leads to destruction upon which many are traveling. And the narrow road where relatively few are on which leads to life. And then last week we looked at the idea of false versus true prophets. That is there are some who are striving in the name of God even to lead us astray onto that broad road. And therefore we must be discerning when it comes to whom we follow. Now again, we are faced with two different options today. We are faced with two professors, if you will. A false profession and a true profession. And so we're going to start with our first point, and that is uh, the idea of denied entrance. That is, who is going to fail this entry exam when we get to heaven? What does that person look like? Well, you might think that I would talk about those who have no religion at all, that is, those who deny God. And certainly those who are atheist or agnostic would fall into that category. Or you might think that I am going to talk about those who follow a false religion, 
those who do not know the true God and have aligned themselves with one of the number of false religions that are prevalent in our day, or we might even say idolaters, those who are idolizing things that are no God at all. Or you might certainly say that we could talk about those who are clearly evil in their lives. They are without a doubt living lives that have nothing to do with the righteousness that we've been talking about in this Sermon on the Mount. But by and large, those folks are not here. So I'm not going to talk about them. Certainly we understand that they are going to be denied entrance into heaven, but that is not our topic this morning. Those people are not here. They are not listening to me. They were not listening to Jesus. Remember the audience to whom Jesus is speaking this Sermon on the Mount were followers. Now we've said that they were not fully devoted disciples of Christ at this point in his ministry, but they were following, they were listening. And he says to them, these words. And so our focus will be on those who seem to be following, but in reality, they are not. And so this morning, we are not talking about examining someone else's life. We are not talking about looking for the fruit in prophets as we did last week. Today, we are talking about examining our own lives. Today we are looking for the fruit in our own lives to see if we are going to get entrance into heaven one day from these most sobering of all verses. It's a little wonder that people want to bypass the Sermon on the Mount. Some even claiming that it no longer applies to our day and age because the demands are so high. It is so difficult to attain the things that we have talked about here. In fact, we we sort of just want to clip these verses out of our Bibles. I thought about pretending to do that this morning, having a piece of paper up here and just clipping out these verses, not marring my Bible, of course, but pretending I was. Because the reality is we would love to distance ourselves from these verses. Had we not known that Jesus said these, we would discard them. But because these are the words of Christ, we must examine them. So those who are denied entrance, notice first of all that they may be in the right place. That is, they they were listening to Jesus. Or in our terminology, we might say they were sitting in church. John MacArthur said years ago, by scriptural standards, that it's hard to believe that even half of the church members in the United States are true believers. I've heard estimates as high as 80% who say church members, 80% are not genuine believers. Of course, we cannot know the number. Others make that number much smaller, but the truth of the matter is There is only a percentage of those who make claims to be believers that are actually true believers. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is what Jesus is talking about in this text. That just because you are listening, just because you are going to church, does not necessarily mean that you are going to get into heaven someday. And that is why it is so important for us to continually examine our faith to make sure we are in that number. Now, the tempting thing to do this morning is to think of someone else. I'm so glad so-and-so is here today. They need to hear this. Or I wish so-and-so were here today because they need to hear that. 
We think of someone who might be a member of our church but hasn't been in a very long time and their minds, their, their names come to our minds and we think that's someone who needs to question their salvation. But I'm encouraging all of us to examine our lives, not necessarily to question our salvation. I'm not trying to get you to needlessly doubt. I'm simply saying what the Bible says, and that is we do need to examine ourselves. Peter writes, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So both of these apostles encourage us to test our own faith to make sure it is indeed genuine. I know there are some people who who don't want to question their faith. I know there are some people who think all doubt is of the devil and that we ought to just shake it off. And I know there are some people who doubt needlessly and excessively, and that is not what I'm encouraging, but I am saying we ought to examine our faith because it is possible to be in the right place, to be listening to Jesus even in church and yet not get access into heaven. But it gets even worse. Secondly, you might also have the right belief. Again, we are quick to point our fingers at those whose doctrine is suspect, even as we did last week. And we looked and we said, well, there's a false prophet because they are teaching things that are not in accord with orthodox theology. And because they deny this core doctrine or that, we know that they are not genuine believers and preachers or teachers of the true God. But here, these folks are saying the right words because they seem to have the right belief. And that is, they say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Now, that word early on was a word that was simply used as a form of address. That is, it was much like our sir. It was used to speak of someone who was in a position of authority or someone who had a higher social standing than you did. And so it was a common term. It's used in the Bible to refer to someone who is a master or an owner. And so in one sense, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are ascribing deity to Christ. However, later on, Jesus takes this word and certainly applies it to himself in a way that was not common in that society. And therefore, as we move further in the gospel narratives, we find his disciples using this term for him over and over again. And of course, it is right to do so. The Bible does say that we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that as a result, we should have repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not enough merely to say those words. Many people have been taught to repeat words and because they've said the right words, they are assured not only in their own heart, but by those who have led them to say those words that they have salvation. And no doubt in the moment, they might very well be genuine, but in the end, they might be self-deceived because reliance upon a recitation of some prescribed words is not enough for assurance of salvation because Jesus says here, you're calling me Lord. That's not the end of it either. They're in the right place with the right belief, 
and they even have some right behavior. I mean, look at verse 22. Many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy? And notice the repetition here. Didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They were believing that they were doing these things in the name of God. They had preached, they had cast out demons, they had done many marvelous things. And by the way, elsewhere in scripture, those are genuine marks of salvation. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But in this case, he says they might think they were doing it in his name, but in reality, they were not. There are, of course, some, we talk about those who who don't come to church, but there are some who, who love the church. They love all the activities. They love the fellowship. They love the social aspect of being part of a church. But while they love the church and they are ready to serve in it, their love for the Lord does not match up with their zeal for the church. Maybe it's just because of tradition. They were raised in a church and so they continue to come to church, but no real love for the Savior. So it is possible to be in the right place with the right belief and even have some of the right behavior and yet be denied entrance into heaven. And since we all know that this is possible, let me give you an example. And no, it's none of you, so relax. I'm not about to call any of you out. The example is a well-known example, a man by the name of Judas. And you know that name. That name is still uh, used for the one in the Bible. That is, we don't name kids Judas anymore because it is one who is a betrayer. So you're familiar with that name. He was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he was the treasurer of the group. That is, they thought highly enough of him to put the money that they had for ministry in his hands and under his control so that he might keep it and ultimately distribute it. We have no reason to believe that Judas acted in any way differently from any of the other 11 disciples. Because had he acted differently, you remember the scene where Jesus is around the table with the disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And had Judas acted differently from the other disciples, I suppose they would have immediately said, it's got to be Judas. I've seen it. I knew he wasn't really one of us, but they don't say that. They all immediately begin to say, Lord, is it I? So that tells me that Judas didn't act any differently than any of the other 11 disciples. He walked with Jesus. He watched him perform miracles. He listened to his teaching. He was there when Jesus preached this sermon on the mount. There's more. Judas also performed miracles just like the other disciples. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that when Jesus had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. And immediately after that, Matthew records the names of the disciples of whom Jesus is talking and Judas is listed there meaning he was given the same power to do those things, the same abilities as the rest of the disciples. And yet we know in hindsight that he was not a true child of God. That those miracles did not grant him access into heaven. 
And yet we have even more evidence than that because we have the words of Jesus in the very verses that we are looking at this morning. And surely Judas falls into that camp. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Which brings us to the fourth point in this first point, and that is these folks will not hear the right words. They will not hear the right words from Jesus. Instead, they will hear that last verse, depart from me, I never knew you. They claim to know him, but Jesus says, I don't know you. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a knowledge. When it says there he, he knows, it's, a, it's an intimacy. The word know is used in the Bible for intimate relationships. So it's not that he has no knowledge of these people. He has no relationship with them, and therefore they are cast aside. What are some of the harshest words that you've ever heard? I think we should see other people. Maybe when we were dating as youngsters, someone says, I, th I think we should see other people, which we know what that means. I want a divorce. Many of you have heard that. And you still remember where you were when you heard it. I've never loved you. Or I no longer love you. You have cancer or some other disease. Or maybe it was a phone call or a, a knock on the door to give you the tragic news that someone had passed away. You never forget those words and you never forget where you were when you heard them and yet none of them compare to the words we find in this text where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That demands that we assess our spiritual lives so that we don't come to the point and be denied entrance into heaven. So let's look secondly then at those who are granted entrance. And the points are going to be largely the same here with some distinction. In other words, once again, it may be possible or it must be possible in this case to be in the right place. If you want access into heaven, you must be in the right place. And what I mean by that is that you must be a follower of Jesus. You must be listening to Jesus. You remember we talked last week about who are you listening to? And we were talking about prophets or teachers or preachers. That is, who are you following? Who are you uh, uh, addressing or who is addressing you in your spiritual life? I'm not using it in that same way now. I'm saying, are you a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Now, I'd love to mention the church here. I'd love to talk about how you ought to be or you should be or even you must be in the church. And with a few exceptions, I believe that's true. I don't like the whole idea that people can claim to have faith in Christ and yet have nothing to do with the church. I think that's diametrically opposed to what we find in the scripture. I think if you love the head, you're going to love the body. Christ is the head. We are the body. So a genuine love for Christ, one who is listening to him, means that you are going to be actively involved in the body. But I do not want to sidetrack the sermon into that as much as I would love to. But you must be in the right place. That is, you must be listening to Jesus. But then we see, secondly, you must have the right belief. Lord, Lord is still required. That is, you must know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Many years ago, there was a, 
ongoing debate in Christian life about separating those two things. Could you have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord? That is, could you invite him into your heart to save you from your sins? And then maybe if you wanted to, at some point later in your life, you could declare him to be Lord of your life. And so there were some theologians that were separating those two things and saying you could have one without the other. You can have him as Savior and maybe later on have him as Lord. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's biblical. I think when you have Jesus as Savior, you also have him as Lord. You cannot separate the two merely because you want the benefits of salvation. And that's what so many people do. That is, they, they desire to be saved, to assure themselves of heaven, and so they pray a prayer, they have Jesus as their Savior, and then they go on living their life any way they please or just as they did before because they don't have Jesus as their Lord. And that is not what the Scripture teaches. We are to have him as both. The two cannot be separated. Lord means, as we'll talk about in just a few moments, that you are going to be obedient to him. Which does lead us to the third point, then you must have the right behavior. That is, you have to be in the right place. Again, the distinction is not in the subpoints here because they are very much the same. But you've got to have the right behavior. We see that in verse 21. The genuine convert not only calls Jesus Lord, but what does it say there? But he is the one who does the will of my Father. That is obedience. That makes sense, doesn't it? It is only those who do the will of the Father who have eternal life. Now, once again, I must state that this does not mean works salvation. A.W. Tozer once said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize obedience that does not spring from faith. The two go together. Faith is not apart from obedience, but genuine faith leads to obedience. Or as someone else said, no man enters the kingdom of God because of his obedience. You don't get there by your works, but no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. That is, you don't get there by your works, but you're not going to get there if you don't work because the two go together. They are, the same, they are two sides of the same coin. Faith is the starting point. It is a gift from God, but faith is not stagnant. Faith acknowledges that Jesus is Lord of our lives, and therefore we desire to follow him. And maybe it's our definition of faith that is at fault here. Because so many people seem to have temporary faith or momentary faith, maybe we have a faulty definition of what faith is. Faith is not merely believing something is true. I mean, doesn't James tell us the demons believe? In that sense, the demons have faith, but they're not believers. Faith is not just believing something is true. That's intellectual assent. That is, you might acknowledge who Jesus is, but that's clearly not enough. Faith, then, is believing something is true to the point that you act upon it. And that's where the obedience comes in here as we're talking about. And I'm afraid there are many nominal Christians who claim Jesus as Lord on their lips, but not with their lives and not with their heart. Jesus says elsewhere, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? 
I mean, that doesn't make sense. You don't call someone Lord if you're also not going to follow them. And that's what we see here as well. But of course, this doesn't fully answer the question. So how can we know if he's really Lord of our lives? It is very simple. Are you following him? A master, an owner, has the right to command obedience and expect it. Now, that does not mean that we're going to be perfect, and that's where, we, that's where we can get off track. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in our following of him. None of us are. But I'm simply asking, can you honestly say that your desire is not just to name the name of God, but you desire to faithfully follow him? There are a host of people who follow Jesus when times are good, but they go AWOL when things get bad. There are a host of people who want Jesus for the benefits that he can offer. It's not that they want to serve or follow or be obedient to Christ. They simply want his benefit package. They don't love him. They want things from him. You remember the story in Acts of Peter and this man named Simon from Samaria? Simon believed. He believed to the point that he was baptized. So Simon hears the message that Peter's proclaiming. He follows through in that message with baptism. And then he says to Peter, Peter, I want the same power that you have. I want the power to lay hands on people so that they receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said to Peter, I'll even buy it. Tell me how much. I'll pay you for the power that, you're, that you and the other disciples have so that I can have that same power. He wasn't interested in following Christ. He simply wanted the benefits and the glory. And Peter says, the power will perish with you. And he doesn't give it to him. And it's clear that this man, Simon, is not a genuine believer. There are many people who profess faith in Christ because they need him as a comfort in tragedy, or they need financial help during times of uh, tough times, or they need him for a hundred other things that they think he can provide, but they care nothing about obedience. And that's exactly the point Jesus is making here. It is the one who does the will of my father, that is the one who has the right behavior because we are desiring to be obedient to God. Again, not perfection. Peter denied Jesus three times, in fact. But when confronted, he repented and returned. Peter gets the worst of our criticism, but read that story carefully and you'll discover that all the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. None of them stayed with him during his most trying time. They all left. But all, save Judas, of course, returned and followed him in the path of obedience and that's what genuine Christians do. Yes, we fail. Yes, we sin. Yes, there are times in our lives where we are not obedient, but we repent and we return over and over and over again. The genuine disciple keeps coming back and following God. We don't desire to sin and see how much we can get away with it. We are grieved by our sin. You remember how the Beatitudes started? Blessed are those who mourn. And we said that was not primarily mourning over someone who had died. That was mourning over our sin because it grieves us. The false professor might mourn over the consequences of sin, but the genuine professor mourns over sin itself. 
Because we have a desire for righteousness. Again, that's what this whole sermon's been about. Not my sermon, but Jesus' sermon. The Sermon on the Mount has been about righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that is a righteousness, of course, as we've said over and over again, that comes from the heart. It must be internally motivated. But then we see the last thing. The last thing of those who are granted entrance, you will hear the right words. So this is really the only one that's different. Those who had denied entrance heard the wrong words, depart from me, I never knew you. But those who are genuine followers of Jesus will hear the right words. And those words are not found in these three verses, but they're found elsewhere where Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that have been prepared for you. Those are the right words that we desire to hear one day when Jesus meets us. I don't think Peter's going to meet us. I don't know where that ever came from. I think Jesus is going to meet us. And he's going to say to those who are genuine believers, well done, good and faithful servant. And therefore, we have access. We have entrance into heaven, not because of our works, but because of our faith but genuine faith results in works. Now, the reason this is all so difficult is because the points were the same, right? Right place, right belief, right behavior. All three of those were in both sections, those who were granted entrance and those who were denied entrance. And that's why it's so hard for us to distinguish what it really does take to go to heaven. Even people in the church who have been coming for a long time have, a difficult, uh, have difficulty understanding what it genuinely takes to get into heaven. There is so much confusion. But what it takes is faith rightly understood. And faith rightly understood is faith that results in actions. Obedience following. I remember another story where Jesus sends the disciples out. They come back. They're all excited about what uh, they were able to do. And they're sharing their stories about the power and the ministry that they were involved in. And yet Jesus sort of squelches their enthusiasm just a little bit. And he says this, don't rejoice in all of that. Rejoice that your name is written down in heaven. Again, I'm not trying to make you needlessly doubt. My goal this morning is not for you to go home and needlessly wrestle with things that you ought not to wrestle with. But I think we've gone to the other extreme. Years ago, the Puritans, they would wrestle with their salvation for months, even years. There are stories of Puritans who wrestled over the genuineness of their salvation for year upon year before they finally came to terms with what it meant to be saved. And I'm not saying we need to do that. I think that's one extreme. But I think we've gone to the other extreme where we don't even want to think about it for a 30-minute sermon where we're already thinking to ourselves, I wish the topic would have been different today because I really don't want to deal with this. Well, better to deal with it now and make sure we are right with the Lord before we get to that day and we are denied entrance. Far better to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that have been prepared for you. Let me pray. 
Father, we do pray this morning that you would help us examine our hearts. I, I really do not want to cause people doubt and confusion. I, I really do not want them to, to go down a, a track that is not good for them. But at the same time, Lord, your scriptures tell us to examine our faith. And so for those who, who do have genuine faith that results in, in faithful following, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would confirm that. I pray that you would give them the assurance of their salvation. But for those who might have false assurance, I pray that you would convict them, help them to repent, and have genuine faith that trusts in you and that leads to faithfully following. Lord, give us wisdom in our own lives, to know the difference. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. I do want to uh, close with a couple of verses that I think uh, shows the uh, connection between what we were just talking about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. And that's where we tend to stop. But the very next verse says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're dismissed. <laughs>